0: section 7 of the outline of science volume 4 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the outline of science volume 4 by j arthur thompson chapter 28 the making of the earth and the story of the rocks part 3 paragraph 5 a piece of coal To the geologist, coal is a rock, just as much as granite or sandstone, playing a smaller part than either of these in the formation of land masses, but of great economic importance. It is a derivative rock, that is to say, it is formed upon the surface of the earth. But unlike sandstone, it is not detritic, not made up of the fragments of previous rocks. It consists chiefly of the compressed and altered remains of plants and all rocks which are formed through the intervention of plant or animal life are said to be organic in origin. Chemically, coal consists chiefly of carbon, combined with hydrogen and other gases, and it differs from unaltered vegetable matter in containing more carbon and less of the other constituents. When coal is burnt in air, the compounds of hydrogen and carbon break up. The oxygen of the air combines with the carbon to form carbonic acid gas, and with the hydrogen to form water. In each of these reactions, chemical energy is set free in the form of heat. Where did this energy come from? It was stored up by the plants from which the coal is formed, and the plants in these far-off times lived as plants do today, by trapping the energy of the orange-red rays of the sunshine. George Stevenson said of one of his early railway engines that it was the light of the sun that drove it. Ordinary household coal is not the only fuel resulting from the transformation of vegetable remains. Peat, for example, consists of little altered vegetable residue fermenting in the bogs where the plants actually grew. In lignites, the structure of wood is still recognizable. Cannel coals and boghead coals are dull in appearance, break irregularly, and are clean to handle. Anthracite is also clean, but is shining and metallic and difficult to ignite. These types form a series becoming progressively heavier and richer in carbon. But it must not be thought that anthracite, for instance, the heaviest of all, has, in its formation, passed through all these stages. Rather, are these different types of coals derived from different assortments of plant remains. The chief plants of the coal measures were ferns and giant tree-like forms represented today by the horsetails and club mosses. Modern horsetails and club mosses are mostly small plants, pygmies compared with their predecessors in the Carboniferous Age. Flowering plants were just beginning when the coal measures were formed. Coal often shows bands parallel to the bedding plane, alternately bright and dull or charred. The dull bands consist probably of altered wood and the bright bands of leaves and cones. In many cases, the coal seams rest upon beds of fire clay known as the underclay, which contains fossilized roots and other remains of the plants of which the coal is made up. Limestones, sandstones, and ironstones are also associated with coal, and in some places, lumps of limestone known as coal balls and containing very fine fossils are found in the coal. Although coal is best known from the Carboniferous Period, Scattered deposits occur in rocks of nearly every age. The ancient plants which formed the coal measures possibly grew in swamps near the sea, like the Everglades of Florida today. The fallen tree trunks accumulated, and vegetable matter may have been carried into the swamp by rivers. The land gradually sank, and the swamp was invaded by the sea, and beds of sandstone and other sediments were laid down on top of a layer of plant remains, which became coal. Then the land may have risen again, a new forest sprung up on the site of the old one, and in time a second seam of coal may have been formed above the first one. Sometimes, however, coal may have been formed from driftwood or by the choking of a freshwater pool with vegetation. Whatever be the origin of the coal, the romance is the same. The rough, dirty lumps are the memorials of a silent forest of strange trees, they contain the stored energy of the sun which shone on these primitive plants. As we saw in a previous chapter, they can yield us dyes of all the colors of the rainbow. Chemically, they are nearly akin to the clear, sparkling diamond. A piece of chalk. Chalk is a soft, white, earthy rock, almost pure carbonate of lime, but mixed sometimes with various mineral impurities. It is made up of the broken skeletons of mollusks, sea lilies, sea urchins, and the like, but especially of the shells of some of the simplest of living creatures, belonging to the group of the one-celled animals, or protozoa, and included in the class foraminifera. Their shells are often smaller than pinheads, but they are extraordinarily beautiful. Chalk is therefore an organic rock, but it differs from coal in being made of compounds of lime, not of carbon, and in being derived from the remains of marine animals, not of plants. There is very little carbonate of lime dissolved in seawater, but there is a much greater amount of sulfate of lime, and various kinds of marine animals, such as foraminifera, are able to transform the one to the other under certain conditions. Animals which require a great deal of carbonate of lime are confined to clear water and to the warmed parts of the globe. When we look at the chalk cliffs of Dover, We are looking at the results of the lives of minute foraminifera, which lived in the great part floating on the surface of an ancient sea. When they died, their shells sank slowly to the sea floor, and there formed a deposit. A similar deposit is being formed today by similar animals over wide areas of the ocean floor. And in another article, reference has been made to the interest and importance of the ceaseless rain of tiny dead creatures that drift down into the abysses. The Building of a Coral Island Other kinds of limestone, less pure than chalk, being usually mixed with mud worn off from rocks and stones, consist mainly of the remains of mollusks, sea lilies, and corals, or of foraminifera, different in habit from the chalk formers. The Building of a Coral Island has been described by Professor J. Arthur Thompson, The Study of Animal Life. Quote, we see a multitudinous life rising like a mist in the sea, countless millions of microscopic creatures often enclosed in beautiful shells of flint and lime. Myriads of them are always being killed at the surface by vicissitudes of temperature and the like. They sink gently through the miles of water to find a grave in the abysmal ooze. The submarine volcanic top, which did not reach the surface, is slowly raised by the rainfall of these countless minutiae inch by inch for myriads of years, the snowdrift of dead shells forms a patient preparation for the coral island. The tiniest, hardly bigger than the wind-blown dust, form, when added together, the strongest foundation in the world. The vast whale skeleton falls, but melts away till only the ear bones are left. Of the ruthless grizzly shark, nothing stays but the teeth. The sea butterflies, pteropods, with their frail shells, are mightier than these, and perhaps the microscopic atomies are strongest of all. The pile slowly rises, and the exquisite fragments are cemented into a stable foundation for the future city of corals. At length, when the height at which they can live is reached, coral germs moor themselves to the sides of the raised mound and begin a new life on the shoulders of death. Unquote. The living coral is a branched colony of individuals, all connected together, and with their soft bodies encased in strong shells of carbonate of lime. Each individual or polyp is little more than a stomach, with a mouth surrounded by tentacles. Each is sheltered in a little cup of the limey skeleton, which invests the whole colony. The branching skeleton assumes beautiful, flower-like forms. The coral reef builds upwards and outwards. The central part is often suffocated, while the edges grow freely, so that when the reef reaches the surface of the water, it may form a ring-shaped island. On this island, weathering forms a scanty soil. The waves cast up drifted material, the birds rest. In time, the new land is peopled with animals and plants. It is a strange and beautiful story, dead shells of the tenderest beauty, on the rugged shoulders of the volcano the slowly laid foundation for the reef-building polyps, at last plants and trees, the hum of insects and the song of birds over the coral island, Chemically formed rocks. When a pool of seawater dries up, the salts dissolved in it are deposited on the floor of the basin and a deposit is formed, including common salt and sulfate of lime or gypsum. On a big scale, this has often occurred in the past and we may call the results chemically formed rocks. The valuable deposits of mixed salts at Strasbourg in Germany were formed in this way. A peculiar example of a chemically formed rock is found in the flints of the lower beds of the chalk itself. Flint is an impure form of silica, of which quartz is the crystalline form, deposited from water trickling through the chalk. The water derives its silica not from quartz, which is nearly insoluble, but from the flinty skeletons of animals, such as certain sponges, and the radiolarians, another group of the one-celled animals or protozoa, whose skeletons are more delicate, latticed, and pointed than those of the foraminifera. Very little silica is present in seawater, but these animals possess the power of transforming particles of clay, impure silicate of aluminium, into flint, of which they build their skeletons. We are now able to attempt a rough classification of the derivative rocks, namely, the rocks made up of materials derived from elsewhere. Firstly, according to their composition, there are five main types, made up one of grains, usually of silica, two of finer particles of clay, three of carbon compounds, four of lime compounds, and five of silica in solid flinty masses, with various others less important chiefly of chemical origin. Then we recognize three great modes of formation. A. The detritic, that is, built from inorganic rock debris. B. The organic, that is, from remains of plants or animals. And C. The chemical. All are closely linked together. These classifications make for clearness of thinking, but nature seems to set them at defiance, mixing and mingling in a medley which is at once a puzzle and a fascination. A piece of slate. Derivative rocks, too, may be found in greatly altered forms. Slate is a rock which can be split into thin slices, and as everyone knows, it can be made smooth enough to write on. Slate is a hardened and altered form of clay, and so its classification is with the clays and sandstones we have already discussed. It is a detritic, derivative rock made of fragments worn off older rocks. Clay is formed by the chemical alteration of felspar, one of the most important constituents of granite. The weathering of the granite allows water to carry off the altered felspar, and the river or the glacier deposits clay in beds. The clay, which ought to consist of silicate of aluminium, is usually full of impurities, such as grains of sand and lime. The deposited clay very often hardens in the form of shale, a rock which can be split into very thin sheets parallel to the plane of the beds or strata in which the sediment was laid down. Slate is a clay or shale in which the original bedding has been obliterated by great pressure in movements of the earth's crust. The mineral particles have been rearranged in sheets by squeezing so that the rock can split into thin flakes. Such rocks are called metamorphic. The clays, it may be mentioned, have a special importance. They are impermeable to water and therefore hold up rainwater which would otherwise sink to such depths below ground as to become unavailable. The clays also, by reason of their softness, readily decay, with the result that beds of rich soil are formed. Paragraph 6. Precious Stones When we turn to precious stones, we are dealing with rocks no longer, but with individual minerals. We have considered minerals hitherto simply as constituents of rocks. But when we consider them by themselves, we take up a new point of view. In rocks, the minerals are usually in small crystals. They are often impure. They are not free to develop equally in all directions, and consequently their shape is irregular. By studying individual minerals, and particularly precious stones, we take as our types the finest, the purest, and the best shaped examples to be found. We have seen already that when a mineral crystallizes, the molecules or smallest possible particles of the mineral arrange themselves upon a certain definite plan, and this gives certain definite properties to the crystals of each mineral. In the study of rocks, the properties which are of most use for the recognition of minerals are those concerned with the effect of the crystal upon rays of light. But in the study of individual minerals, more account is taken of the shape which the mineral assumes. So the study of minerals and of precious stones is largely a study in crystallography. What is a precious stone? What are the characters that give a mineral a commercial value? Generally speaking, and making allowance for certain exceptions, they are these. Perfect purity and freedom from cracks or inclusions of liquids or of other solids is essential. Transparency, brilliant sparkle, and good color are important. Hardness and the power of resisting chemical as well as physical wear are usually required. And lastly, if the stone is to have any market value, it must occur, sometimes, but only rarely, in fine specimens suitable for cutting. It matters not what the chemical composition may be. Gems range from the diamond, which is pure carbon, to the tourmaline, of which Ruskin said that, quote, the chemistry of it is more like a medieval doctor's prescription than the making of a respectable mineral, unquote. It matters not if the gem be but a variety of a mineral, which in some other form enters into half the rocks of the world, as amethyst is a variety of quartz, or if it be a strange combination of rare chemical elements to be found only in three or four places in the world, like the emerald. Certain stones which possess the qualities of hardness, brilliancy, and rarity in a marked degree, like the diamond, ruby, and sapphire, are always highly prized. But among the less outstanding gems, vogue and value are largely dictated by fashion, and many very lovely minerals are ignored. Among these semi-precious stones, the varieties of quartz play an important part. Silica, the oxide of the element silicon, occurs most commonly in the form of crystalline quartz, which is, as we have seen, an important constituent of acid igneous rocks and of all sands. In granite, however, it usually forms crystals of extremely irregular outline and is often very far from pure. Curious cavities, which at one time probably contain gases, are of common occurrence in igneous rocks, and they are often lined with large, well-shaped crystals. Ordinary or milky quartz is valueless, but the perfectly clear rock crystal, the purple amethyst, and the brown carngorm are all used as gems. Along with quartz in these cavities of igneous rocks, there often occur rarer minerals, in whose formation the contained gases have probably played a part. Amongst these is the valued topaz, a hard, almost diamond-like stone, which may be clear or of almost any color except the rose pink with which jewelers not infrequently stain their specimens in response to the dictates of fashion. Tourmaline, a stone of variable color as of variable composition, a quote, little of everything, unquote, also occurs in this way. Pink and green specimens are the most valued, and black is the commonest, while specimens occur which show two colors, as red and green, blending into each other. Topaz and tourmaline are alike in possessing remarkable electrical properties. When heated, they will attract fragments of ash or scraps of paper just as a vulcanite rod or the cap of a fountain pen will, if it be rubbed. Silica occurs not only as quartz, but also combined with water as opal. Some varieties of this are used as gems, and are exceptions to the usual rules of gem qualities, for opal is neither very hard nor very resistant, nor is it crystalline. Its play of colors, like that of Mother of Pearl, but more bright and fiery, is due to the presence of a multitude of little cracks whose angles break up the light reflected off the surface. This is called physical color and would, of course, be destroyed completely if the opal were ground to powder. The colors of Mother of Pearl, or of the golden iron pyrites, or of a parrot's red and blue feathers, or of a film of petrol on a pool of water, all depend on the breaking up of white light by an irregular surface. But the color of an amethyst, like the color of blue eyes, is due to the presence of a recognizable colored substance. The amount of an impurity necessary to give a tint to a clear stone is so small as almost to defy analysis, but we know that it is manganese that gives the purple tint to amethyst, and nickel that is responsible for the green of chrysoprase. Agate is a beautiful variety of chalcedony, another form of silica, which consists of successive layers of different color laid down round the walls of a cavity from solution in water. Coat after coat is applied, building inwards towards the center, which is not infrequently filled by a few quartz crystals. Cut across, the agate shows fine concentric lines and variations in color corresponding to each successive layer of material. Onyx is an agate with alternate parallel bands of black and white. Pearls. The minerals of derivative rocks are largely the same as those found in igneous rocks, but worn and shattered by their adventures in the rivers and the sea. New minerals are formed, however, by the action of plant or animal life, and a few of these are valuable. Red coral is allied to the reef-building corals. Amber is the hardened fossil resin of pine trees. Jet is a variety of coal. But of all the organically formed gems, one is supreme and outstanding, and worthy of a place with the diamond and the ruby. In the form of chalk, of limestone, or of marble, carbonate of lime is one of the commonest of minerals. But in the form of pearl, its value is as surpassing as its beauty. Pearls are globules of carbonate of lime laid down layer by layer by an oyster or mussel round some foreign body within its shell. They were prized in ancient Egypt, India, China, Peru. Quote, In all ages, Pearls have been the social insignia of rank among the highly civilized, unquote, writes W. R. Cattell in The Pearl. And yet the pearl is soft, easily damaged, and easily tarnished. So great is the demand, nonetheless, that long researches have been devoted to furthering the production both of artificial or imitation pearls and of culture pearls in the preparation of which a foreign substance is introduced into the shell of the mollusk. Round which it may be induced to form a genuine pearl. Aristocrats Among Jewels Four gems may be classed, along with the pearl, as the aristocrats among jewels. Emerald, sapphire, ruby, and diamond. All are true, precious stones, intensely hard, clear, sparkling. It is a mistake to suppose that, weight for weight, the diamond is the most valuable of these, but the diamond occurs sometimes in large, perfect crystals of enormous worth. Emerald is a bright green variety of the mineral beryl, another variety of which is aquamarine. Large stones of good quality are rare. Indeed, even small stones of absolute purity are very uncommon. Emeralds often show curious variations in the color, which may be much deeper at one part of the stone than at another. Many stones sold as emeralds are, in reality, garnets, tourmalines, or other minerals. Rubies and sapphires are varieties of the same mineral, corundum, which is the oxide of aluminium. Rubies are deep red, while sapphires may be any color, but are usually blue. Both are very hard and rather heavy, and both, like emeralds, occur frequently in rocks, greatly altered by heat or pressure. Rubies vary in color from rose to carmine, and are most valued when they possess the tint of pigeon's blood, The color varies according to the direction in which the stone is cut. A perfect ruby of good size is worth three times as much as a diamond of the same weight. The Diamond The diamond undoubtedly reigns king of all precious stones. Not only its great worth and its romantic associations, but also its chemical and physical properties give it the lead. Its properties of reflecting and refracting light yield an inimitable sparkling luster. It is the hardest substance yet discovered, but it is decidedly brittle and can be burnt away completely, though not melted, in the tremendous heat of the electric arc. Formerly, however, it was believed to be capable of resisting every attack and received its name of adamant or the unconquerable. Chemically, the stone consists of the element carbon, pure and uncombined. It is strange indeed that the premier gem of the world should be of the same material as the soot of a lamp chimney, or the graphite of a lead pencil, only crystallized, that is, with its molecules arranged in a different way. Carbon enters into the formation of every organic compound, and the number of its compounds known to science is far greater than the number of all other known substances put together. Each one of us breathes out enough carbon every hour, in the form of carbonic acid gas, to make a diamond of 100 carats, worth anything over 20,000 pounds. Naturally, the question arises, how is this everyday element, carbon, induced to take up this precious form? By difficult and costly processes, small diamonds have been produced artificially, and the experiment has shown quite clearly that enormous pressures must play a part in the transformation. In South Africa, diamonds occur in a strange igneous rock, a mixture of fragmental ashes and lava, which fills old volcanic pipes. It is supposed that diamonds were formed during the cooling within the pipe of the molten materials thrown up from great depths by the volcanic forces. This rock, called blue ground, is a very basic character and is a remarkable assortment of minerals. It is very tough and after being dug up is exposed to the action of weathering for 12 months so that it becomes broken up and the diamonds can be picked out. Some authorities hold, however, that the diamonds are deposited from water and are derived from organic compounds. In other cases, the diamonds occur in sedimentary rocks, as in sandstone in Brazil, or in loose sand in some parts of Africa. We can readily suppose that the diamond resists weathering, which breaks up the rock in which it was formed, and that it was rolled down as a pebble to take part in the formation of the sediment. Diamonds in their natural state do not display their full fire and beauty, but are irregular in shape and often somewhat cloudy or frosted in appearance. To bring out their qualities, they require to be cut. For this purpose, they are first split with a diamond knife and then ground on wheels coated with diamond dust. The stones are cut into various shapes, such as the rose and the brilliant, with different numbers of angular facets. These shapes have, of course, nothing to do with the natural crystal shapes, which are often eight-sided, double pyramids. In addition to its brilliance and hardness, the diamond has certain remarkable properties, such as that of phosphorescence, or glowing, after being rubbed or being exposed to light. In the opinion of Sir William Crookes, it is the most sensitive substance for ready and brilliant phosphorescence. Diamonds are not all clear white. They may be of any color even deep red or deep blue, though these are very rare. Remarkable Histories The story of diamond mining abounds in curious incidents. The first Brazilian diamonds were used as counters for card playing. The first South African diamond was a child's plaything. Diamonds have been discovered in the walls of houses and in the throats of poultry. More than one fine gem has been thrown away as worthless. Not less remarkable are the histories of individual stones. The huge Great Mongol, once the property of the emperors of Hindustan, has been totally lost. The koh i or Mountain of Light, from the same treasury was hidden and protected by one royal owner after another, even in the torture chamber, but its power for evil appears to have passed away, for it now reposes among the royal jewels at Windsor. Too many diamonds, like the pit or Regent, have a history of bloodshed and cruelty. We remember how, in Kipling's story, the king's ancus, the jeweled elephant goad, killed six men in a night. Even in later days in South Africa, the diamond has not been untainted. But at least the two largest diamonds in the world, the Excelsior and Cullinan, have had a more fortunate history. The Cullinan was found in the Transvaal in 1905. It weighed in the rough state 3,250 carats Are almost one and a half pounds, avoir du It measured four and one half by two and one quarter inches. It was cut and ground into nine large and about a hundred smaller stones, and the two first parts are by far the largest cut diamonds in existence. It is the property of the British crown. Round the diamond, as round all precious stones, strange legends and beliefs have gathered. The toad was anciently supposed to carry a jewel in its head. The dragons, which were believed to inhabit the Alps, were similarly adorned. And the lucky man who found a dragon asleep had the duty to cut out the stone and run the risk of wakening the dragon to make himself rich for life. Gems had all sorts of supernatural properties. They cured all manners of diseases. They were charms in love, in battle, in peril of all sorts. They were lucky or unlucky. But never merely neutral. There were stones for the days of the week, for the signs of the zodiac, for the months of the year, for all the saints of the calendar. The only element of romance which was overlooked was the scientific romance of the origin and properties of crystals. End of section seven. End of chapter twenty eight.